So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42 this morning. The opening line of today's text is one that all of us are most likely familiar with. In fact, this verse might be the only Bible verse that most unbelievers in America know. I would venture to say that many unbelievers know this verse or some semblance of this verse more than they know the famous John 3.16. I say this because this verse, judge not and you will not be judged, is, is the one thrown into the face of every church and every Christian when they make a comment about any practice that they deem to be sinful. Many unbelievers are quick to note, you cannot judge me, or you are not supposed to judge me. Or to take it a step further, those who claim to have some sort of knowledge of God may say, well, only God can judge me. Our culture insists we must not judge others. And we're told this through various outlets, that judgment of others is immoral, that it's wrong. And in the age of tolerance, to be outspoken against any practice that we may deem sinful is considered intolerant. But when we think about it, this is exactly what we expect from an ungodly and secular society. We expect a response like this because darkness does not like the light. We know that very clearly. Scripture tells us of that. And so we expect that in a secular society, but if we bring it closer to home, for many of us, Christians, those who follow Christ, we also have a hard time reconciling this text. On one side of the coin, we know that we aren't perfect, so how are we to stand in judgment or criticize someone else? I know my own faults. I have no place to do that, right? Not to mention it's uncomfortable, and Lord knows we don't want to do anything that's uncomfortable or that might hurt someone's feelings. But on the other side, too many Christians are quick to judge, and they're quick to criticize others, both in the church and both outside of the church. And to be honest, unfortunately, this is where many Christians fall on this side of the spectrum. They're quick to judge without giving thought to their own sins, their own lives. So where do we find balance between this? How do we reconcile this text of Jesus that says, judge not or else you will be judged? As Christians, are there, are there areas in which we are to judge or are we to just let everyone kind of run wild doing their own thing without using any type of discernment at all? I would venture to say as we approach this text this morning, although it is so well known, it is the subject of great misunderstanding. What was Jesus saying when he uttered these words? Well, what I will submit to you this morning is not that Christ prohibits us from making certain judgments, but that he shows us how we are to rightly judge as his followers. And in doing so, Jesus is further elaborating on how we are to love our enemies evangelistically and what that looks like and what that means for the Christian. In Jesus' teaching, we see that there are a certain standard, there are certain standards and certain ethical obligations that he places on his people to be lived out in society. And church, I can assure you of this. A community that lives by such principles 
will stand out against natural human self-centeredness as an alternative society. Incomprehensible even, maybe, but undeniably attractive. And this morning, I pray that the Lord would use this text to edify us, to sanctify us through the preaching of His Word as we seek to live out these principles, as we seek to live by His Word as it works both in us and through us. And so if you're able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 6? I'm going to read verses 37 through 42. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray one more time. Father, your word is good, and you've given it to us. And so, God, as we approach it, may we rightly hear, understand, and know it. May it settle upon our hearts and change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as this text opens up, as mentioned, Jesus is giving further examples about how loving your enemies is carried out in everyday life. And he begins by saying that we are not to judge or condemn, but instead should forgive and give. Now, before we get into the meat of what Jesus is saying, I think that it's important to realize from the outset that we cannot understand the point of Jesus' commands unless we see them in light of God's character and in, in light of God's disposition toward his people. We cannot read these words and think to ourselves, well, these are good principles to live by. I think that I will do what they say. If we are merely following Jesus' teachings here as good principles to live by, then we miss the depth and we miss the motivation from where these principles derive. We must take these commands to heart in light of the way that God treats us. It's what we saw last week. Despite our sin... God has loved us and He has forgiven us. He has graciously declined to judge us and instead has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember, we talked about this last week, we are to love our enemies. Why? Because God loved us, we being also His enemies. We were enemies of God, Romans, uh, Romans 5 says, Paul wrote. And yet, even while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, He sent Christ to die for us, offering forgiveness to us as we turn from our sin and trust in Him. Because God was merciful toward us, 
we are then told to be merciful toward others in, chapter, in verse 36. He gives kindness and blessing and withholds judgment out of His own compassionate heart. And if God has done this for us in Christ, then how can we have a judgmental or critical spirit toward others? And so when we demonstrate this same attitude of kindness, of goodness, of mercy toward our enemies, we are giving evidence that God is our Father. Jesus said this last week. And so this is His nature toward us. This is the nature of God toward His people. And if you bear His nature, if you bear His name, that is how you need to be as well, is what Jesus is saying. It's what He's elaborating upon in this particular text. And so I want to begin this morning by making my first observation, particularly what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying. Now, while we all need to hear this message this morning, and I think it's pertinent for all of us, obviously, I particularly want our college students, our teenagers, our young people to hear this very, very clearly this morning. While all of us are either uncomfortable with the idea of judging others or are too quick to judge others, our young people, and I know I sound like an old man when I say this, young people, our teenagers, our college students, our kids are growing up in the age of tolerance. And when I say tolerance, I don't mean just letting people do whatever they want to do and just letting it kind of go as it is. I mean that they are being told that if they do not endorse or condone certain worldviews or certain behaviors, then they are intolerant or judgmental. It's not tolerance. It's you must endorse, you must get behind, you must champion these various worldviews or else you are intolerant. And this is the widespread message in today's America. And our young people are being heavily influenced with this through Instagram and TikTok or whatever else is out there that they are being exposed to. And parents, I would encourage you, cut down on that exposure. Too soon, too early often. Monitor that stuff. So everyone hear this clearly this morning. Jesus is not saying that we are to do away with judgment. It's not what Jesus is saying at all in this text. Jesus is not saying that we are to do away with any discernment of the difference between good and evil. It's not saying that at all. As Christians, we are not to go along with society and condone certain behaviors in the name of love and tolerance. We're not. Following Christ and properly exercising Christ-like judgment requires a discerning mind to know the right thing to do and the right thing to believe. And so Jesus is not, of course, telling His followers that they should never exercise judgment, even if such a thing was possible. This is not the battle cry of tolerance that many people imagine that it is, what Jesus is saying here. God's Word calls us from beginning to end to be mature and knowledgeable in our discernment that we might recognize even when it appears that we might flee from it and that we might know what is good and righteous and the good and righteous thing to do. Christians are commanded to exercise judgment regarding the behavior and doctrine of others. We see this in various passages throughout Scripture. There are times when Christians are commanded to sit in judgment of our brothers and sisters, for example, in church discipline. 
So it cannot be that in commanding us, do not judge, that Jesus intends for His followers never to evaluate ideas or behaviors negatively. It cannot mean that, because that would be to contradict His own Word, Scripture. The judgment of discernment, the ethical evaluation, is not what was being prohibited here by Jesus. We all make judgments and need to. Rather, he was speaking of a different kind of judgment, the judgment of condemnation. So do not think for a second that Jesus is offering this blanket statement that you can't look at another person or a behavior or a belief and say that is wrong. If that were the case, then we would look at everything and say, well, that's a way to do it and accept it. In other words, we, although we proclaim Christ unashamedly, Christ alone as the means by which someone could be saved, therefore, in saying that, we say that anything that teaches that it is Christ plus something else is wrong, well, we have made a judgment in order to say that. And if we say that we can't make any judgments, then we cannot even say that. And so we make judgments based upon Scripture all of the time, and we also judge others based upon Scripture. And so again, Jesus is not making this anti-judging statement that many, uh, many people in our society or even church world want Him to be making. That's not what He's saying at all. And so what is Jesus saying? So that's what Jesus is not saying. What is Jesus saying? Well, my second observation. Be generous and charitable to others. Be generous and charitable to others. Look at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. What is being forbidden here is not the legitimate exercise of judgments in the law courts, the legitimate exercise of judgment in church discipline, the legitimate exercise of judgment that we must make on a regular daily basis, on any matter. But what Jesus is speaking against is the tendency to criticize and find fault with others. Jesus is addressing a personality trait that we find sometimes that involves being judgmental in one's spirit or being hypercritical to other people. And this has to do with how we pass judgment on other people. What Jesus prohibits is taking a hard, critical, dismissive view of other people's failures rather than offering understanding and compassion. And so Jesus communicates this by offering four simple things. Do not judge, do not condemn. Those are the negatives positively forgive and give. Well, to whom are we not to judge? Are we not to condemn? To whom are we to forgive and to give? Well, to your enemies. To your enemies. Love your enemies. You're to do these things toward your enemies, to the enemies of the gospel, to the enemies of the cross, to the enemies of Christ. Do not judge them. Now, hold on a second. Should we not evaluate them? What are, we, what are we talking about, Jesus? What's going on? No, as I mentioned, you should. I've made that very clear. Even in this same passage in verse 42 and 45 that we're going to consider next week, we see that very thing taking place. This is also doesn't forbid, again, law, government, justice, courts, 
etc. Again, it doesn't forbid discernment. It doesn't forbid conviction, rightly assessing someone or confronting their sin. But what it does forbid is harsh, hard, critical, compassionless hostility toward enemies. We've already had a pretty good hint at this when we look back at verse 28 where Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is the idea. Don't become their judge. Don't pronounce judgment on them. Speak blessing into their lives. Don't pass sentence on them. Love them mercifully. Love them kindly. Be generous to them even your enemies. Give them a judgment of charity. That is, give them the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because that's what we would want. Remember, if you look back to last week's passage, the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated. Wouldn't we all want the benefit of the doubt? Certainly we would. What Jesus is saying here is not isolated from what He said just a few sentences earlier when He asked us to be quick with the judgment of charity and to flee from the contentious judgmental spirit. And so what He is doing is He was filling out the principle of doing for others what we would have them do for us. And if we want other people to give us the benefit of the doubt, then we must stand ready to give them the benefit of the doubt. This is Christ-like behavior. This is how Jesus has called us, His people, to live in this life. Now listen, we aren't naive, okay? Don't be naive. It's not what we're speaking of here. We know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. We aren't looking at this world through rose-colored glasses and assuming the good intent of everyone's behavior. It's not the case at all. We know that no one is good. No, not one, Romans 3 tells us. But even in light of that, as Christians, we must be quick to extend grace. Why? Well, in a sense, we know what goes around comes around. The more we give, the more we will receive, Jesus says. When we refuse to forgive those who repent of their sins, we expose ourselves to God's judgment rather than God's mercy. Now, I would hate to stand before God and ask Him to forgive me of my lifetime of sin and have Him look at me and say, don't you remember that day when somebody sinned against you and they repented and they apologized and they asked for your forgiveness, but you refused to give it? And now you stand before me and you want me to forgive you? It's terrifying. Now, what we're considering here is not eternal judgment. We know that you are not saved by works of the law. You're not saved by your own merits, but you're saved by the grace and mercy of God. But what Jesus has in view here is that in keeping this commandment, one will not entirely escape God's final judgment, but rather, in the day of judgment, one will be judged, but also judged mercifully if they are merciful to others. And the first step in righteous judgment is acquiring the right posture of of the heart, generous and charitable even to those who don't deserve our generosity because we didn't deserve God's. And so give and it will be given to you. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this amazing? Our generosity toward others will naturally create this flow of generosity toward us. 
Isn't that true really in all aspects of life? If, as you are more generous, other people catch on to that, and then they're more generous toward you the more generous you are toward them. And so Jesus uses this imagery from an ancient marketplace. The scene is the purchasing of a commodity of some sort where the amount is measured out, and it's not short, it's not skimpy, but even, uh, it's fair, it's a good measurement. And this is one of those things, you read this in verse 38, and you go, what in the world is he talking about? You know, shaking together, all those things. Well, the grain in the measuring container is pressed down. Imagine this container. You put grain and you press it down so that all the spaces are filled and the container holds as much as possible. And the measuring container is then shaken. Think about it. You can imagine something you've done where you filled something up and then you shook it to get out all the air so that all of the pieces fit directly in there and fill every empty space. And then the container is filled and on top is a rounded heap so, so great that it overflows the container. The container is filled to the brim and even more. What Jesus is saying is that God will bless believers not just in equal proportion to how they give to others, but far, far more superabundantly. And this context has nothing to do with how much money you put in the offering on Sunday mornings. It has to do with how we regard and treat other people. If we're to be moral and right in our judgments, then we are to be abundantly generous toward others. This is what it looks like to love your enemies, to be generous, to be charitable, not hypercritical, giving the benefit of the doubt. And so Jesus is warning us not to be so blind to our own faults that we're prone to nurture a critical spirit. It's easy to do, especially when you're surrounded by critical thinkers or critical spirits. We'll see that in a moment. But a Christian should not judge others harshly or relish the opportunity to criticize others and rejoice when we find faults in them. And really, if anything, this text should cause us to stop and evaluate our own selves, our own personalities, our own dispositions, our own uh, quickness in criticizing or the way we think about people. The critical spirit must not leap at the chance to point out the mistakes of others or to be ungenerous or inordinately negative in his judgments of others. In the end... What Jesus is really concerned about is the measure that his followers will use to judge other people. Be generous and charitable, just as you would have that done to you. Second, third observation. Be careful who you listen to. Look at verses 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher... But everyone, when fully trained, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So as Jesus is teaching during this sermon, we know that there are many disciples who were there, many who are following Jesus. It's the context. It's also likely that there were some there that were fascinated by the miracles of Jesus. We know from previous texts that people were coming because they were fascinated by these healings and what Jesus was doing in these large crowds. But these people who were fascinated by that, they weren't quite, quite, uh, excuse me, quite grabbing a hold of what he was saying. They were taking some sort of a wait-and-see approach to who Jesus actually is. And then there were Pharisees, there were scribes who were likely also gathered among this group listening to Jesus teach. And in a sense, Jesus is speaking to different people in the crowd at different times in the way in which he is so wonderfully uh, wonderful at doing. 
Now, in these two verses, he appears to turn his attention to the Pharisees and scribes. And he does so because they had the biggest influence on those who were trying to follow him, attempting to follow him. And particularly, they were concerned about Jesus because he, in some sense, was turning upside down the entire religious system of their day. All the religious practices of their day, the Jewish practice of their day. They saw him as a threat. He's coming in and he's teaching scripture. He's doing these things and really just flipping everything upside down. Remember, they applied laws and burdens and expectations upon all who sought to be faithful to God. And Jesus is responding to those because they are disconnected from what it means to be truly faithful to God. They are abusing the Old Testament in trying to lay these burdens and trying to lay these heavy weights upon people. In communicating to these teachers, Jesus uses a parable. Some of you may be familiar with parables. The word parable was used more broadly than in our common usage, and it included all sorts of challenging and memorable sayings, proverbs, poems, similes, and so on, as well as more extended story parables that we are also very familiar with. Most of them cause us to really stop and scratch our head and go, now what is going on here? And so now Luke draws our attention again to Jesus' use of a parable, and the rest of this chapter will really follow suit. Parables are more than explanatory asides. They're more than just illustrations. They come with a message of their own that is often left unexplained, which is frustrating for some of us, isn't it? They're left unexplained so that the hearer has the responsibility of working out what Jesus is getting at. And sometimes the meaning seems obvious, or sometimes... It's, uh, it's obvious because it really is determined by the context, but often the imagery used allows a variety of applications so that different hearers may hear different messages or different challenges. And so in offering this parable, Jesus is not talking simply about physical blindness, the blind leading the blind. He was talking about spiritual blindness. And in this illustration, he speaks about about both danger and folly when someone is following, following someone who is spiritually blind. Can a blind man lead a blind man? That sounds ludicrous to us, doesn't it? A blind man leading a blind man. Will they both not fall into the pit? When he starts turning his attention toward the Pharisees, he's saying to them, you are blind. And you are leading the blind. What Jesus is getting at as he is exhorting both those who listen to him and addressing the religious leaders is a warning. He is warning them, he is warning us that we should not believe that we are not influenced by what we listen to, by what voices we expose ourselves to. The Pharisees are laying these burdens, these ungodly, extra-biblical burdens on the people of God. They are in essence saying, if you want to be right with God, this is how you do it. And it's not law, it's beyond that. It's their own man-made rules. If you want to be right with God, this is how you do it. But what Jesus is saying to them is that they are entirely wrong in what they're teaching. Jesus didn't teach salvation or good standing with God based upon man-made ritual or good works, which is what the Pharisees did. 
Jesus came along and Jesus turned this idea upside down. Jesus came in his love and said he has come to accomplish salvation in and of himself. He has come in his perfect righteousness to give it to us when we trust him, when we have faith in him. Then, as we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, our obedience is born out of the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us on our behalf. We need to be led by those with keen sight into the truth of God if we want to stay out of the pit. That's what Jesus is saying. And the Pharisees did not see this truth. They were leading these people away from God, all the while convinced they were leading them toward God. Be careful who you follow, who you listen to. Why? Because we all become like our teachers, says in verse 40. Well, who is our teacher? Well, as Christians, our teacher is Jesus. Jesus is the master. Jesus is our rabbi. We are his disciples. We are his students. We are not above our master, but he wants us to be like him. He wants us to learn from Him. He wants us to follow Him. He wants to make us like Him. He wants us to pursue Him and seek His mind. Follow Christ and you will become much more like Christ. Now listen, church. We really need to yield to this teaching. There was a time when the local church was the primary disciple maker of a Christian. Second to parents. There was a time when parents were the primary disciple makers of their children. And by God's grace, that is still the truth in your own home. But behind them was the local church, local pastors, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, whoever. However, with the age of technology, a person's local church has become less and less influential in their lives. Many Christians are receiving their spiritual nourishment and their discipleship from various other individuals through podcasts, through sermons, through books, etc. And listen, I'm not bashing any of that. That's great. I do the same thing. I listen to lots of different podcasts. I listen to sermons. We read all sorts of books. However, there is a tendency to start listening to other voices. Maybe the voices aren't necessarily bad, but they could very easily put you at odds with your own local congregation with your own spiritual shepherds, and potentially begin to sow division between you and the congregation that you're a part of. It's more apparent than ever that we must be discerning on what we are hearing and who we are subjecting ourselves to. Just because it's on Christian television or the Christian bookshelf doesn't mean it's Christian. doesn't mean it's true. As one pastor wrote, if we follow people who are hypercritical and condemning, Sooner or later, their manner becomes a part of our language and manner. If we follow someone who always builds others up, who shows kindness and humility, then we will likewise learn to be compassionate, patient, and tender. I can assure you of this. I know this to be true, sort of, maybe. I don't know. There's a lot of things out there, so it's hard to speak to the whole broad, worldwide web. There are seemingly more Christian trolls out there than ever before that sow a great deal of division, hostility towards certain individuals, other Christians. Multiple conversations I'm continually having with others who are exposed to some of these things. It's important that we are careful who we listen to. Fourth observation. 
address your own sin before you address the sin of someone else. Address your own sin before you address the sin of someone else. Look at verse 41, 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Address your own sin before you address the sin of someone else. Jesus exposes the danger and folly of this thinking of blind men following blind men around. Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind, we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus is echoing this very sentiment when he gives this illustration. Again, just as the first verse we addressed is widely popular, this illustration is right behind it. Most people, once they quote the first verse, judge not and you will not be judged, have some semblance of an idea of this illustration, right? And so this goes back to the original command to not judge lest you be judged. Again, hear this clearly. Jesus is not saying to cease from making discerning judgments. Instead, He is warning His hearers that their gaze should be on their own failures before they look to the failures of others. This was a very pharisaical thing. This is a message to the Pharisees, but it's a message to all of us because it's easy to get on the wrong side of this. A believer should acknowledge and address the plank of sin in her own eye before attempting to help her brother with the speck of sin in his own eye, in his eye. If one is blind to his own faults, he will be of no use in leading others to address their own faults. Someone who has not acknowledged their own sin can never teach others to acknowledge theirs. Now, we can draw a cartoon about this, and, and you know, you may be able to mentally uh, think through it. I'm not a visual person. You can ask Elizabeth. She will tell you. I mean, it's like she can describe something. She was describing something Friday, all right, about a house or something, which is out of my wheelhouse, all right? And she's describing it, just talking and just passionate about it and all this. And then she goes, you don't know anything I'm talking about, do you? I said, no, but if it makes you feel better, just keep going, you know, keep talking. I can't. She's like, you can't visualize any of this. I was like, no, I can't. I'm sorry. But I can visualize this cartoon, okay? We, should, we would see two people walking down the street, one man with a totally indiscernible speck of dust in his eye that would take a microscope to detect it. Just a regular guy. And he's nearing a man with a wooden plank sticking out of his eye. Just sticking straight out of it. And the man with the wood pl plank comes up to his brother with the speck and says, Brother, you have a speck in your eye and you need to take it out. Envision that. The other guy says, how can you even see in my eye with that plank sticking out of your own eye? Can you visualize it? Jesus said this is how foolish people are. We are. We're so quick to see the imperfections in everybody else, but we're blind to our own eyesight. We're blind to the log or the beam or the, the plank that is in our own eye. But we're quick to see it in everybody else's. 
even though we've got one sticking straight out of our own. Now, to be clear, Jesus does not say remove the plank from your own eye and don't worry about your brother and sister. That's not what he says at all. This does not mean that Christians should be indifferent to the sins of their brothers and sisters. Jesus assumes that we should remove the speck in our brother's eye. A passionate commitment to the teaching of Jesus demands that we do so. But he assumes that we need to take, or going to take, the, the, the first logical and necessary steps, which is removing the plank from our own before we do that. In fact, the Bible repeatedly commends rebuke and correction as a way to show love to someone. But only someone who has been made merciful and patient by the merciful and patient grace of God is properly positioned to help someone else deal with their sin. Church, hear this. This is a message for all of us. Because all of us, most of us in our flesh, wrestle with a critical spirit or judgmentalism. The issue of judgmentalism that Jesus is addressing gives us a window into our own hearts. If we are critical of our brothers and sisters, our hearts do not comprehend who God is, who we are, and how He has forgiven us from our sins. That is why those who judge will be judged. Those who condemn will be condemned. And those who forgive will be forgiven. Those who are generous and charitable toward others will receive an abundance, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. The measure you use will show the state of your heart. And as a result, it will correspond to the measure God will use to judge you. Those who are acutely aware of their own sin and God's extravagant mercy will inevitably be merciful and patient themselves. But if your heart is proud, if your heart is hard, if your heart is haughty, then it raises the question of whether or not you have really comprehended the gospel at all. It indicates that you perhaps have never humbled yourself and gone to God for mercy through Christ. And if that's the case, you stand in grave danger. All of these instructions and these warnings help us to further understand what Jesus meant when He said that He came to call sinners to repentance. We sometimes act as if Jesus came to make scandalous sinners like Levi into well-behaved religious leaders like the Pharisees. In our context, we might be tempted to make certain external behaviors, whether that's attendance to church programs, a certain kind of personal appearance, looking as if you have it all together. We're tempted to make these the true indicators that someone is a follower of Jesus. But in fact, the mercy that Jesus shows is not meant to lead us merely to clean up our exteriors. It is meant to make us merciful, generous, and tenderhearted. Those things are good fruit that grow on a tree that has experienced God's grace. We'll see this next week, but if your life does not manifest these qualities, then you must take your judgmental attitude your critical heart, you must take those to Jesus for forgiveness. 
you will not be able to staple this fruit onto the branches of your life. Cry out to Jesus for mercy, and then you will be able to show mercy to others. And all of us have experienced this. Let us be a people marked by our love, generosity, and charity. Because that's what characterizes Christ. That was God's disposition toward us. But let's do all of these things while standing on the truth of God's Word, not compromising the truth of God's Word, but building our lives upon them. This is what is revolutionary, and this is what God has commanded us to do. Pray with me.